Father God, thank you, Lord, so much for this opportunity to come together to study your word, to be with you and with one another. Um, Jesus, as we open up your text this afternoon, we pray that we would be spending time with you, that we would be hearing your voice, hearkening our ears to you and to your direction and what it is you would have us learn from these stories. We ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are looking at the first nine plagues of Exodus together, but rather than make you read three chapters of text out loud standing, um, I've decided to focus just in for just our text portion at the beginning in on the seventh plague. And we're going to be looking a little bit at all of them, but let me just draw our attention to this one for a moment. Then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. Or this time, I'm about to send all my signs to your heart and to your officials and to your people. So that you may know there is no one like me in all the earth. Just for a quick note, I just put the actual, this is in Exodus 9, verses 13 through 18. Verse 14, I put the actual literal Hebrew in for you. God says, this time I'm going to send all my signs to your heart. It's an interesting phrase, given that Pharaoh's going to harden his heart and God's going to harden Pharaoh. But God has said this time, for this plague, I'm going to send all my signs directly to your heart, Pharaoh, to your officials and to your people, so that you may know there's no one like me in all the earth. For by now, I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You still set yourself against my people and will not let them go. Therefore, at this time tomorrow, I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt from the day it was founded till now. Give an order to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter because the hail will fall on every person and animal that has not been brought in and is still out in the field and they will die. Those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside. But those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that the hail will fall all over Egypt on people and animals and on everything growing in the fields of Egypt. And when Moses stretched his staff toward the sky, the Lord sent thunder and hail and lightning flashed down to the ground. So the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. Hail fell, lightning flashed back and forth. It was the worst storm in all the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. Throughout Egypt, hail struck everything in the fields, both people and animals. It beat down everything growing in the fields and stripped every tree. The only place it did not hail was the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron, this time I've sinned. He said to them, this, the Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord, for we have enough, we've had enough thunder and hail. And I'll let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. At the end of that portion of the reading, if you continue in that particular plague, again, Pharaoh is a liar. He won't let them go. He reverses his decision if it was ever really an offer in the first place. He's maybe not the most trustworthy of persons. And so 
the rest of the plague, you can continue. Even after Moses stops it, Pharaoh's heart hardens again, and he doesn't let the people go. The title of our message tonight is Creation Unmade. You know, when we think about the plagues, often many of us have already pictures in our heads because we're familiar with them. We see the Ten Commandments film every spring or the Prince of Egypt cartoon, which is amazing, actually, if you haven't seen it. Or we've been stuck in numerous Sunday school classes or Passover meals um, or a variety of locations where we have um, enumerated the plagues. We've looked at all ten. We've talked about how disgusting those frogs would be. Um, we've looked at all of those. We, we read the brick Testament and all of that. And what we're going to do today is instead of looking at only an individual plague and kind of talking about that one specific thing, we're going to look at the plagues as an, as an entirety, as a whole. Now I did have pastor Mark helped me make these photocopies for you. And I apologize. I know that the quality isn't great, but we'll put an electronic version online for you all. Um, there's little tables of the chart of, uh, of the plagues. It's a chart that's kind of put together. So I know some of you are super geeky and you really like to like read all this stuff and kind of like see how it all matches up. It is fascinating. And I had a lot of fun putting this together and it was helpful for me, but I'm not going to go through all of this. But sometimes when I'm preparing a message, I think, well, that's fascinating. I think everybody really enjoy that, but it's probably not to the point, right? So I've put the fascinating stuff here so that you can take a look at it. And there's a lot more fascinating stuff. But a couple of the things that I want to look at, particularly as we look at the plagues as a whole, you can also note here in your chart, make your own fun notes at home. And like I said, we'll put up a nicer electronic copy online that you can print as big as you want. Um, The plagues, one through nine, we're not doing plague number 10. We've saved that for Pastor Mark for next week. Plagues, one through nine, are really coming in three sets of three. And from a literary standpoint, as we see what the author is doing here, it's fascinating because the plagues are bringing a lot of disorder and chaos. But the writer of Exodus, we can say Moses, is deciding to place them, or maybe God himself as he created them, of course, is doing it in this systematic way. So for plague number one, we have blood. Pharaoh is warned. Where is he warned? He's warned because God says to Moses, go station yourself out there by the river as Pharaoh is coming down. So plague number one is going to do that. Pharaoh's going to get a warning, but he's going to receive that warning as he's going out. Plague number four, which is flies, and plague number seven, which is hail, follow that same pattern. Do you see it? And then number two, frogs, Pharaoh gets a warning again. Plague's coming. And in this place, Moses is told to go to Pharaoh. So he goes to Pharaoh in the palace. And that happens for the second of each of the three sets of plagues. Get it? The third plague, every time, no warning. It just hits. It's kind of like if you surf. If you surf, you are told, I hear, I don't really surf ever, but I like to play in the ocean, but I don't surf. But I'm, I'm aware that you sit on the shore and you watch the sets of the waves and they tend to come in sets and you can sort of predict the next wave that's coming. And surfers are taught to look at the shape of the wave, the timing of the wave, how they come, and they'll wait for those sets so they can have the best ride. They can be most successful. Pharaoh doesn't do this. He's not capable of looking out and saying, oh, I see the set coming. And I'm pretty sure, 
I'm not going to get a warning the third time. Pharaoh is oblivious to all of the signs that are present to him. And as we look at each of these sort of sets of plagues, there's a few things that I think the author of Exodus is trying to share with us about who God is. Let me say additionally, for those of us who maybe aren't just text-driven, there's a few things that I think God desperately wants us to know as his people as we read the plague narratives. And it's not just about, here come the frogs because those are gross, or here comes this because that's terrible, and here's my mighty power and display. That's definitely there. But there's a little more to it that I hope maybe you didn't discuss in Sunday school and you'll get to discuss with us today. Ultimately, the entire plague system, everything that's going to be happening in these first nine plagues as they're set forth together as this unit, are going to be setting up God and Pharaoh in this cosmic battle. Now, in God's defense, God doesn't pick this battle. Pharaoh picks it. Pharaoh's going to pick this battle from the very beginning. Chapter 1 tells us that in Exodus. Chapter 2 is going to tell us that in Exodus. We know that Pharaoh has said, these people have got to go. We know that Pharaoh has set himself up against the creator God of the universe and his very people. We know that Pharaoh has said, all baby boys, Hebrew baby boys, throw them into the Nile. That he's taken the very thing that is supposed to be life, blood, for the Egyptians and for the Israelites. The very thing that God created to be life. Who made the Nile? God did. What is the Nile there for? To bring life to that region. That very thing that's there... Pharaoh reverses its purpose and uses it for death. So I like this little clip. This is it, the battle of the century, any century, by the way, it says on the little clip. Any century, this is the ultimate battle, and this is what I think God wants us to know. As God starts his conflict with Pharaoh, as he starts to have this battle, he takes it this way. By land, by sea, and by air, we're over there. And this quote actually comes from Winston Churchill. It was in his initial speech after becoming prime minister to the House of Commons in 1940, in May. And he said this, looking at the threat of war coming in to Europe. You ask, what is our policy? I say it's to wage war by land, sea, and air with all of our might, with all the strength God has given us, and to wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark and lamentable catalog of human crime. That is our policy. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word. It is victory, Churchill says. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terrors. Victory however long and hard the road may be, for without victory there is no survival. And as I read this quote, I thought, I think I could hear that, right? I think I can hear God saying, this is the worst tyranny we've seen. This is horrible torture that's happening to the people, and we're going in for victory. And the first three plagues, God takes over all of the ecosystem of Egypt. The first plague comes in the water of the blood with the Nile. The second plague comes from land with the frogs. They come up out of the Nile, but they're all on the land and they're stinky and terrible and it's horrible. And the third plague in that first little set is by air with gnats and lice. These plagues start to come in from every direction. And you can almost see that as Pharaoh has set himself up to be a god, 
which is the whole system of Egypt in that day. And if you are really geeky and have a fun time later on, you can look at your chart and see the Egyptian gods that line up to some of the plagues, not all, but many. As we start to see this order, and as these first three plagues are all brought about by Aaron's staff, and the magicians are there, and they're trying to figure it all out, and then the second set of three plagues, there's no staff at all. It's as though God is saying, hey, I don't need that stick. We're not conjuring up some power, Pharaoh. This is the real thing by land, by sea, by air. And as the third set of plagues are all Moses' staff, it's almost to show us who has been leading at God's command this entire time. All of this is to set forth that Pharaoh is not God and that God is in charge. Let's look specifically at this third plague of lice or gnats. We actually don't know what the word is there in Hebrew. It's used for lice today in modern Hebrew, but maybe it's gnats during that time. And maybe, you know, we always kind of look at these nice Bible pictures a little bit, something like that. You know, he hits the dust, Aaron hits the dust, and the dust comes up, and then the lice and gnats go throughout the land. Let's just read this portion really quick. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground. And throughout the land of Egypt, the dust will become gnats. And they did this. And when Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff and struck the dust of the ground, gnats came on people and animals. And all the dust throughout the land of Egypt became gnats. But when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. Since the gnats were on people and animals everywhere, the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Now, of the first two plagues, the magicians that work in, in Pharaoh's palace, they are able to duplicate the plague. Now, I'm not sure how helpful that is, actually. Because if I were looking for somebody to help with that whole blood everywhere thing, I'd want somebody who could take the blood away, not make more blood. And if I were looking at somebody to help with the frogs that were lying in a stench heap with death in the air of all of Egypt, I wouldn't want somebody to make more frogs. And in fact, if you look at the text there in the Hebrew, it says that the frogs were literally in the Egyptians, in them. So, so not fun. And the magicians are like, I can help with that. Here's more frogs, right? So that's all they can do. But here, when they get to this point, after, at the third plague, the magicians are now not able to do anything. They can't reproduce it. They can't stop it. They can't do a thing. And for the rest of the time, they are powerless in any way of reproducing, reproducing the plague or making it go away, which they're never able to do. They're completely powerless in the face of what God is bringing forth. And as we think of this lice thing, and as we look at these plagues, we often look at them and think to ourselves, oh, you know, I've heard this story before, lice, that sounds bad. Well, I thought I would help you. Uh, because I actually searched lice, and then I, these are the most tame photos I actually put up there, and I almost lost my lunch looking at those images. Um, and so we've sanitized this picture. Even in Menlo Park, there's a place called Honeycombers that look how happy this child is. And, uh, and they're just taking the lice out of her hair because nobody wants even to do this in their home. And I've had friends. I mean, lice just happens. I've had friends that have had to take their kids to this really posh salon in Menlo Park. And it just sanitizes the whole thing, right? We just want to pretend that it's as clean as possible. And by the way, I've also heard it costs an arm and a leg. And everyone's willing to pay for it because it's just so gross. And they just don't want it in their home, right? So at this point, when we think of lice, I think we need to think 
how gross and disgusting it could possibly be, and that the Egyptians find themselves in this place, Pharaoh finds himself in this place, not just with this one plague, but with all of the plagues over and over and over again. It's not like, oh, blood in the Nile wasn't so bad. And that over and again, we just need to see that God's going to give Pharaoh like nine chances of escalation to make sure that like the 10th one's really, really bad. No, no, no. Each one is bad in and of itself. And I don't think any one of us would have wanted to live through any single one of those plagues. And part of what the text is telling us is that Pharaoh's ego, Pharaoh's determination that he is God, that he is a God, and that he is in charge, and that his power is greater than any other power out there, has made him numb to the very suffering of his own people and of even himself. He's going to continue to push forward in face of all of God's display of his creative power. Now, as the magicians sit there and they say, this is the finger of God, why might they be saying that? Well, in part, it's possible that they're saying that because they're like, well, we can't do it, so therefore it's the finger of a God. Like, it's a, it's a divine thing because, yes, we have some power, but ultimately we would admit it's counterfeit power. We've been conjuring things up. We're able to do something with some sort of secret art or magic. But at this point, we're not able to match the power that's coming at us. And I think that this point actually is quite important. There are powers in this world that can be destructive, that can make more blood come out of the Nile, that can make more frogs. But at a point, their power does not match the power of our creator God. It is a counterfeit power, but it does have real impact. And I believe that anyone who's being impacted by those frogs, by those lice, by that blood in the Nile, those persons are sitting there saying, that's a a real power. But Pharaoh is standing there deep entrenched into his belief that he can match this power of God. Well, part of what might be in the mind of the Egyptians and of of the magicians particularly is that they have this concept in ancient Egypt of ma'at. And ma'at is an ancient Egyptian concept of truth, balance, order, law, morality, and justice. Ma'at was personified as a goddess, regulated the stars and the seasons and the actions of both mortals and deities who set the order of the universe from chaos at the moment of creation. So what we have here is that the Egyptians are having to do a radical belief shift, don't they? They're having to sit there and going, but wait, I thought we had order. I thought our world worked according to the way we wanted it to work. But all of a sudden, what God is doing by land, by sea, by air, is he is showing that they don't have the order that they think they have. And in fact, if we're honest, they never had it. They've been providing some order for their own people, for their own powers. But I am certain that the Israelites would have said that they were living in a land of chaos, not of order. And God is stepping into this system where Egypt says, but wait, we have order. We know that the stars were set in the place by Ma'at. And God is stepping in and saying, ah, no, I'm going to bring chaos to what you think is order. 
And as the Egyptian magicians are sitting there and they're trying to reproduce these lice or gnats that are in the air, it's fascinating as we look at this first set of plagues because the first two plagues come from a place of water. Blood from the Nile and then frogs coming out of the Nile onto the land. And there's this idea that in Egypt... They have a commodity, a cornerstone on this power of water. The Nile was one of the most beautiful things in the land. It provided agriculture and food. It was the breadbasket of the world. And if you'll look back into Genesis, you'll remember that not once, not twice, but a couple, three times at least, there's some Israelites who are going down into Egypt because there was a famine in the land of Canaan. They go down to Egypt because the Nile is always with water. And the Nile is watering their crops. I've been there on the banks of the Nile. And I have seen that even as you start to pass the green line and move towards the desert, even just before the boundary there, you can drag your heel in the dirt and a canal of water will appear. Just irrigating your field. All you have to do is just drag your heel and you can start to see the water of the Nile come in and irrigate your entire crop. The Nile in Egypt is powerful, and the Egyptian magicians are able to conjure up similar things that come from the water. But when these lice and these gnats, whatever this is, come, they come how? Aaron strikes the dust of the land, and it comes up. And it's as if God is saying, ah, you think you control the water, but guess what? I also control the dust. I also control the desert. I am also the God, not just of the water, but also of the land. And Pharaoh and your Egyptians, you cannot come against me in this way. God is in charge of all. Now, this is actually something that the Israelites are really going to wrestle and struggle with. They're going to ask that deep question of, well, we know that God was the God of water because he's going to help us pass through the Red Sea. But is he also the God in the desert? Can he also provide for us, give us bread, give us water in the desert? And for 40 years, they're going to practice that lesson, that God is the God of both. And it's going to be a difficult lesson to learn. And even as you push forward into the text, you'll read other contests and stories. For example, Elijah and the god Baal up on the heights of Mount Carmel. That is a contest between a god that they believe Baal of the waters, of the thunderstorms of the sky. And all of these questions, these theological questions, are present in the minds not just of Egyptians, but also of the Israelites. And as God starts to operate with these plagues, again, take the idea of whether or not it really happened or naturalistic um, explanations of it, which, by the way, A naturalistic explanation of this miracle doesn't work once we get to the fact that it only happens in particular places but not in Goshen. Because if it were a natural eclipse at the thing of darkness, then how come Goshen is in the light? So we have this text that's shouting at us, God is powerful, God can do these miracles, and God is in complete control of all of it. In fact, some of us are going to get really distracted by this phrasing. But Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not listen. And we'll have these huge theological debates as to whether or not Pharaoh had a difficult time hardening his own heart or if God hardened it for him. And we'll have all these, well, you know, three times it says this. And, uh, you know, just look at your chart. You can figure out how many times God says it or Pharaoh does it. And it's very fascinating. But ultimately what we need to know is this. Whether or not God is hardening Pharaoh's heart 
or Pharaoh is hardening his own heart. By the seventh plague, Pharaoh's no longer given the chance to make a change. God is now in control of all of his creation. And it reminds me that God is not just in control of the elements of that in the land, of the sea, by the air, of that in the waters, that in the desert, of, the, of all of that, the weather systems. But God is in control of even the king himself. And Pharaoh has been set up on a collision course with God. Of his own making, for sure, but also... God is telling us from the very beginning, the first plague we read through, that this is so that the world may know that God is God. That all of Egypt will know, that all of Israel will know, and that we may know today that God is in control, that God is in charge of all of these powers. It reminds me a little bit of the verses that we'll see in the Gospels over and over again. Jesus knew what they were thinking in their hearts. God knows what Pharaoh is thinking in his heart. God knows Pharaoh's mannerism. He knows how he has set himself up against the creator God of the universe. God is aware of all of that. He's not just in control of the hail. He's also in control of Pharaoh's internal life. And when we start to read this, we start to see, wow, this isn't just a God who likes to flex muscles and put them on display. This is also a God that intimately knows us. And as Jesus will also, I just love this echo. I I wonder how much of that echo is when, when Jesus knows what they're thinking in their hearts, how much of that echo pulls all the way back into the Hebrew scriptures. Jesus knows us intimately. He knows what's here. So for all of us who are trying to pretend, put on a different act, pretend to be really holy while we do our prayer, he knows you don't want to do it. It's okay. Just shout. I don't want to do this right now, Jesus. He'll be like, that's okay. I already knew that. And then you can have your conversation that's a little more real. You want to have a real relationship with somebody. Don't lie. As we start to look at all of this, we start to see that creation is becoming undone. If you'll go back to all that we studied at the beginning of Spark, when we really, we did our first five values, and then we just launched into Genesis for about a year and a half. Um, as we hung out in Genesis, we spent some time talking about the order of creation. In fact, I think we spent, I don't, it feels like months in just Genesis 1 and 2. And sometimes just one word in the one verse. And as we looked through, we saw that God had, in many beautiful ways, started bringing order out of chaos. There had been darkness and God spoke into the darkness and said, let there be light. And light is brought forth. That God, as he starts to see these things, he starts to create these forms, days one, two, and three. And then similarly, as we're looking at this pattern for the plagues, he starts to fill those forms in days four, five, and six. And they correspond. So day one, we have light is created and light and darkness are separated. They go to their right places. There's order. There's boundary. There's no chaos anymore. That there's waters now above and below rather than just messing up and being everywhere. And remember at the end of Job where God will say to Job, hey, have you said to the ocean, come this far and no farther, right? This is the story of God's powers on display. God is a creator. Day three, God creates the dry land and the plants and the trees and the fruit. And then on day four, corresponding back to day one, sun, moon, and stars. On day five, corresponding back to day two, we have fish and birds filling the waters and the air above, the water above and the water below. Which, by the way, do you, I don't know if you know how to say the skies or heavens in Hebrew, but it's shamaim. And 
one rabbi I know says, in, in Hebrew, to say water, you say mime. And so waters below are mime, but the waters up there are shamaim, which is mean waters there. Sha, like sham, sham means over there. There, sham. So shamaim, water there. Water here, water there. Um, and so fish, birds, and then day six, going back to day three, is plants, trees, animals, and ultimately humans. The pinnacle of God's creation, day seven, God rests. Well, as we started to see at the very beginning of Genesis, things went bad real, real quick. And not long after, God's having to undo his creation again. He's having to send waters through the flood of Noah over the earth, over everything people can see. And as he sends those waters, he then will rebirth the earth. And we, you can go back and listen to that message, but it's a really incredible picture of God bringing, again, chaos into the world, but now a reordering of that creation. And as God sets those waters back over the earth, and as they start to recede, Noah comes out, and there's a huge echo of all the commands that Adam and Eve got that are now given to Noah. Things go bad again really quick. But that ark that Noah builds is called a teva. In Hebrew, everyone say teva. And the basket that Moses was placed into when he was hidden and then discovered by Pharaoh's daughter is called a teva. So both places in our story, we have the Exodus narrator saying, don't forget creation. Don't forget a God that rescues and saves. And this Exodus story is going to be reaching back into Genesis 1, 2, and 3, but in a different way. And just as God rescued and redeemed all of his people with Noah in the Teva, God is now rescuing and redeeming his people through Moses and Moses' deliverance. Oftentimes then, when we sit and we look at the plagues, we look at the list. Okay, let's just say it all. Blood, frogs, gnats, flies, livestock, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, firstborn. And we sit there and go, oh, that sounds bad. And oh, geez, that would be horrible. And um, by the way, the boils part, like the magicians are also deeply impacted by these boils. And they're so, it just says they're not able to stand before Moses and Aaron. But it doesn't actually say like, are they just so uncomfortable that they're not able to stand? And I think the, the text is vague on purpose, right? You know, that, that it's just, it's just bad and awful. And as all God sends these things, we start to see that his created order is becoming undone. So first we'll see that the waters above and below that were supposed to act in this particular way are now being undone. That the Nile's turning to blood. It's not bringing life anymore. That the waters above in the skies are going to be raining down hail. That all of the things that were chaotic and horribly difficult when God first arrives on the scene of creation and speaks order into it, let there be light. Now God is undoing that. Now note that he's not undoing it for everyone. This isn't a situation back to Noah with the flood. This is specific. This is Pharaoh and Egypt. And they have done very specific things to earn this treatment. They have brutalized God's people. They have tortured. They have killed. They have enslaved. They have done horrible things. And God is undoing their created order. So Pharaoh and all of the powers that be in Egypt, you have created this world. And this world is anti-God. It is not how I set it out to be, and I will undo it. 
And God starts to undo the created order. Egyptian God by Egyptian God, powers, land, air, and sea by powers. And so we start to see that in the waters above and below, we'll have gnats and lice on the dry plants. And fascinatingly, if you go and and you can look in your chart that I provided for you, uh, you can find these exact words pulling directly from Genesis 2, Genesis 1, Genesis 3, as they start to say, trees that are fruitful and grass, these pull together. As they start to talk, even when they say, let there be light, when they talk about the land of Goshen, the phrasing there is incredibly similar, and it says simply, and there was light. And so we start to see that all of the things that God set into place for our good, to create that beautiful Garden of Eden experience, the one he intended for us, that when God looks out into this world and he sees powers that stand before him and say, we don't want your order, God. We're going to pick our own order. And our own order is going to abuse and it's going to destroy and it's going to enslave. That God sits there and says to all of us today, this is the good news. We are to remember this. That order of chaos and oppression will not stand. I will undo it. I will undo it. We are to remember this. This is what we're to know about the plagues. This is the very thing we are to know. That God is a God that can look into these powers, that can look into this and say, I will not let that stand. It is not how I intended it. And as we look into this world and we see injustice, as we read the Twitter feed from Iran saying this 14 hours ago, the cause of insecurity in the region is Zionist regime, which is the U.S. chained dog. As we see ISIS murdering Christians, enslaving women and children in horrific, unspeakable ways, as we see Boko Haram, as we see Christian students killed in Kenya, as we see the disasters and even the powers of God that are now put out and bringing chaos instead of life, as we see people fly planes into buildings, as we see all of that, as we see an entire empire, an entire power of Egypt destroyed, we are to remember that this battle is not a God versus Pharaoh battle. This is a God versus any power that would stand up against his intention of created order. And when God creates, he creates and speaks life and he says, it is good. But when these other powers are creating, they're speaking and they are bringing about hurt and pain and terror. And I'm not going to diminish the fact that those are powers. That those structures of existence that are in Pharaoh's land, that are in our land today, are destroying life. They're destroying life. But what the plagues tell us is that they will not have the last word. The plagues tell us that Pharaoh is an anti-God, an anti-creator. He's representing anti-order, anti-power, anti-beauty, anti-justice. And the plagues undo Pharaoh's creation and set back into order God's creation. This is the rule of the plagues. The plagues aren't simply just crazy displays of God's power. The plagues are diving into that Egyptian world and they are saying, No more. 
I'm undoing this. I'm pulling at the thread and the fabric of all of that oppression. You think you control the sun? You have a sun, God. You think you're in charge of that? There will be no sun for you. You have a cow God named Hother. There will be no livestock for you. You have a frog God that's in charge of the frogs and fertility. Ah, you used the Nile to kill Hebrew baby boys. You will have the stench of death in the air and your fertility goddess will die. And God starts to say, you are undone now, Pharaoh. This is your undoing. And it's important. It's deeply important that we don't get caught up in the fun debates of did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Did Pharaoh harden God's heart? It doesn't really matter because it all needs to be undone. The empire, these powers and principalities that Pharaoh had set up, they need to be undone. And we need God to step back into this chaos and bring about his created order. And through all of that, we will learn that he is the only God. There is no other God. We will be left like the Egyptian magician standing there and saying, this is the finger of God. There is no other power at play here now. We can't conjure up a power that can stand in front of it. And at some point, we will physically never be able to stand in front of even Moses and Pharaoh anymore, of Moses and Aaron. And instead, we are going to have to bow down to the power of this one God. And he will let his people go. As that creation is undone, there's this next beautiful chapter coming that I just want to give you a little preview of in two weeks. There's a birth that's coming. And as God undoes that created order of Egypt, he will redo his creation again as he sets Israel free. And there's going to be this beautiful redoing a beautiful making, a beautiful building. No more tearing down, but now building up. Literally, there will be a building in the tabernacle. And God will be bringing about a created order that is to bring light to the nations. And this is what we're looking for. We are thankful to have a God that says that chaos is now undone. But my creation is redone over and over and over again. God is never going to be satisfied until we're back to the garden. And every time we read the text, we are reading stories where God is pushing us back to the garden. When you read the book of Revelation and you read those plagues, those seven bowls of anger, when you read about all of that, do you know what you're reading? You're reading about the undoing of Babylon, the undoing of the powers that are anti-God. And then you are reading about the reordering of the created world. Again, the one God intended. You'll be reading about another garden of Eden, a new garden, a new heaven and a new earth come down. And God is in this business over and over and over again, that as we see destruction and as we see powers in this world wreaking havoc, God looks into that and he says, out of that chaos, I will bring order and I will put it back to right. And this is ultimately what he does to the person of Jesus. 
that through all of these stories that we're going to be reading from Genesis all the way through Revelation, stay with us for five years. Uh, We'll get there. (laughs) That as we push through all of these stories, we will see this theme over and over again. Creation redone. God isn't a God of second chances. He's a God of five thousandth chances. He's a God of infinity chances. He's a God that is never satisfied to look into his creation, the one that he built beautifully and said it is good. And let's just take it personally for a moment. He is never satisfied to look into your life, into your heart and into mine and say, I'll just let that chaos reign. He won't be satisfied until he can look in and see the order and the goodness and the life that's found in the Garden of Eden. He's pushing for that in beautiful ways. And if your experience is anything like mine, sometimes there's some chaos he has to undo. But through that, he starts to build something beautiful. As people of faith, this is the true power of the plagues. That God looks directly into the face of terror and of the news and of powers and principalities. And he says that will not stand. I'm bringing about a new order. It is the garden of Eden. It is on its way. The new Jerusalem coming down a new heaven and a new earth in your life and in mine. We are starting to see hope. And God makes a distinction between his enemies and his people. Let's pray. Jesus, we're in awe of you. We're in awe of this beautiful story that you've been telling in the face of our sin, in the face of our disobedience, in the face of the chaos that...